If you will join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans to chapter 11. We begin tonight in verse 9 in the portion of the text where Paul is saying, did God cast away his people whom he foreknew? His answer was in Greek, which means what? God forbid. Certainly not. No way Jose didn't happen. Yeah, so in verse 9, and David says, who's David? David Horowitz? No, this is King David, the prophet of Israel, who was also the psalmist, who says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them, that their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bow down their back always. Let me tell you how this is misinterpreted. Too many commentators look at this and says, oh, it's because they won't eat pigs and shrimp and lobsters. That's how they're so darkened of their mind. That's not what it's talking about at all. It says, let their table become a snare and a trap. But it says, let their table become a snare and a trap. It's talking about the table on which they eat the sacrifices to the pagan gods. So they're sacrificing to Baal and Ishtar and Moloch and all these pagan gods. And they're also sacrificing a lamb before God and believing that through all of it, they are saved, they're whole, they're delivered, they're complete. Is that where salvation comes from? Is it from sacrifices? No. no. Is it from the works of the law? No. Does it come from pagan gods? No. So from all of those perspectives, they have become blinded because they no longer know what the truth is. They've lost the understanding and the meaning of the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Were they ever designed to be a way of salvation? No. But you say that. But didn't Messiah say if you follow the commandments, you'll live? Yes, he did. So, and Moses said that too. So what's the disconnect? Are we saved by following commandments or aren't we? No, no. no we're saved by faith. And it's by faith that we follow the commandments. You cannot have one without the other. Where does the scripture say without faith it's impossible to please God? James what? Because I was going to say Hebrews chapter 11. I'll, I'll turn to Hebrews 11 and we'll just see if it doesn't say that right about verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For you comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So is it enough simply to say, I believe that there's a God in heaven? <clears throat> Answer is no. The book of James tells us squarely, even the demons believe that and they tremble. But are they saved? They are not. Where does it say faith without works is dead? Faith without works is dead. It's in the book of James. So let's turn up to James. A lot of people believe there's a God. And a lot of people believe Jesus was the Messiah. That's correct. And that doesn't make them saved, does it? They just don't believe in him or in correct. him. 
You're absolutely correct. So what was your question again, Karen? Faith without works is dead. This is in James chapter 2, verse 17. And 20, okay? But verse 17 says, Thus also faith by itself, which means just the words, if it does not have works, is dead. If your actions don't support your words, then your words are meaningless. You can tell me all day long you believe that Yeshua is the Lord. And if you do not obey him, then you don't really mean it. Because what does the word Lord mean? It means master, the one we serve, the one whom we obey. Now, where does this quote come from? He says, and David says, it's from the Psalms. Let's go back to Psalm 69. Let's look at the context. And real estate is location, location, location. In the Bible, it's context, context, context. Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23 are the words. So let's start in verse 19 to see the context. Whom is this written about? You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none, and for comforts, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Oh, wait a minute. Messiah quotes those words, doesn't he? Let their table, now we know who there is. There refers to his enemies. Those that are bringing reproach upon his name. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Now we understand. It's those that have made a choice. And the choice is to reject Messiah, to renounce him, to call for him to be crucified, to be rejected, to be alien from your life and your ways. Now we go back to Romans 11, we understand. So he's saying that the Jews who rejected Yeshua are not truly Jews, since the word Jew means one who worships the true and living God. They have rejected the word of God. Where did God first promise Messiah? Be careful. Genesis 3.15, but back up to Genesis chapter 1. The Moedim. What are the Moedim in Genesis chapter 1? They tell the first and second coming of Messiah. Doc's looking at me like, Where's that again? So let's turn to Romans, I'm sorry, to Genesis chapter 1. I'm just trying to remember how I relate that to Messiah. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. But that word seasons is not seasons as in winter, spring, summer, and fall. That's Saman. This word is Moedim the appointed times, and they're in Leviticus 23, and they teach the first coming of Messiah and the second coming of Messiah. So how does that relate to Messiah? It tells us when he's going to 
suffer and die, be buried, be resurrected, etc. And then, of course, in Genesis 3.15, we have what's always been called the Protoevangelium, that is always as far as I can remember, and I'm not that old. Verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice seed and her seed is capitalized, because that's Messiah Yeshua. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Back to Romans chapter 11. When he talks about the indignation songs, songs, it's talking about the wrath of God being poured out. Would, would that be in the latter days? Yep, that's going to be an end times prophecy. Why is it that much of Israel will go through the tribulation period? Because they were not what? They were not saved when the tribulation period started. So God will pour out the wrath upon them with the rest of the world because what's his purpose in pouring out the wrath? Is it to hurt people? Because he likes to hurt people? Or is it to call people to salvation? Yes, repentance. Repentance. And Zechariah 13 says that the children of Israel go through the seven years of trial there like silver is refined and that a third of them will come through the fire as believers which they weren't when the tribulation period started. Romans 1 verse 11. I say then, Paul says, after looking back at the prophecies, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Meaning, is God done with the children of Israel? Major Noito. Major Noito, that's right. In fact, that's what Paul just said. Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Something happened about the year 135 of the Common Era, or AD 135. That was when Bar Kokhba was leading the armies of Israel in revolt against Rome. And he couldn't lose. He won every battle. So Rabbi Akiva, who was the leading rabbi of the day, declared him to be the Messiah. And that was the fatal mistake. Because what then did the Messianic Jews in the Israeli army say? No way. We cannot fight for a false Messiah. They said major. No, they were speaking Hebrew, but I appreciate your point. But they left the Israeli army. In fact, they left Israel entirely and went to Pella in Jordan. What's today Jordan? Barcopa never won another battle. And Israel was defeated. The nation was destroyed. The Romans cut down every tree. They plowed the ground with salt. They renamed Israel Palestine and Jerusalem Aeola Capitolina. And the non-believing Jews, furious at the believers, went down to a place called Yavne, down around Gaza, and started what's called today rabbinic Judaism. And the believers then, having been separated from the non-believing Jews, went out into the Gentile world because they weren't accepted by the non-Messianic Jews. And wherever they went, they took Messianic faith with them. In that similar fashion to what happened to... Uh, Good and loud. That similar fashion to what happened to the... King that uh, in Yeshua's day, who at his birthday 
he was speaking and all the people said, a God, a God, and he didn't repent and he was struck with worms. Yeah. Yeah, they happened up at... Yeah, thank you. Mm, at Caesarea Maritima. Yes. So, it it would have been something when, to when see. someone is falsely proclaimed as God. You know, a God or Savior or what have you, yep. and that person knows it's not true and they don't, you know, disclaim it, God's not happy. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. But this is why the messianic faith has been so hard for non-messianic Jews to accept. It went out into the Gentile world and the church then began to say, well, the New Testament's written in Greek. It's for the Gentiles, it's not for the Jews. And they gave Messiah a Greek name. And pretty soon the Jews just looked at it as, well, it's a Gentile religion for the pagans. It has nothing to do with us. But, the fact but is that it wasn't written in Greek, at least in John's day when he wrote the book of John and the book of Revelation. You're correct. The original language in the New Testament is Hebrew. You and I both agree on that. And for it to have been converted over to Greek could have two possible reasons. One, the many people spoke Greek that were being converted and did not speak Hebrew. Right. The gospel was going out to the Gentile so world they, too. So I'll translate but the other is more dark. That the the beginnings of people taking power from being quote believers pointed in Greek to cover up its Hebrew origins. And actually it's very frustrating because the holy name doesn't even occur in Greek because it can't. Right. If you go back, I think it was 1991, there was a Bible conference out of Oral Roberts University and some of the premier speakers got up and told the assembled congregation to hold your breath because from studying the Dead Sea Scrolls, we now know that the New Testament was written in Hebrew. And you could hear the <gasps> all over the auditorium. Um, but yes, but my point is this. By the believers leaving Israel and going out to the Gentile world, it at least kept the gospel message alive until Israel's ready to receive it. So if you put your hands together like a V, the belief in Messiah and the non-Messianic Jews split for almost 2,000 years, but they've been coming back together since the reformation of the nation of Israel, particularly in 1967. They say in 1967 there were 2,000 believing Jews in the world. And now, if you go to the Messiah Conference at Grantham, Pennsylvania, you'll see Jewish people from all over the world. When I made my first visit to Israel, they, there wasn't a Messianic congregation in Jerusalem that I know of. But now if you go, they're all over the place. As God always intended, the faith is coming back to the children of Israel. And that's what it says here in verse 11. Have they stumbled, they should fall, certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And now you have a lot of Jewish people today that say, I, I wish I had what they have. I see the peace they have. I see the love they have, the calmness of heart. How can they be like that in this, this horrible world? 
and they come to investigate. Um, at the last Messiah conference I was at, I think it was the last one, the guy sitting next to me was a rabbi from a non-Messianic congregation. He had come specifically to say, I want to know, is Yeshua the Messiah or isn't he? And by the time the conference ended, with tears in his eyes, he said, yes, he is. But he had come because he wanted to know where this joy was coming from, this optimism. Because if you look around at the world, if you don't have faith in Messiah, there's not a lot of reason for optimism in this world. That's what verse 11 is about. So, yeah, okay, salvation left Israel for a while. There always was a remnant of Messianic Jews, always. And there are books written on that that trace Messianic Judaism. It's always been there. But for the majority of people, the faith was in the Gentile world, and now it's coming home. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32 and see what Moses had to say about that 3,500 years ago, give or take. Deuteronomy 32, verse 15. This is from the Song of Moses. Israel has not entered into the promised land yet. They don't have the city of Jerusalem yet. And yet, look at what it says in verse 15. But Jeshurun, that's Jerusalem, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you're obese. That is, God will bless Israel to the point that they're going to stop looking to him. Then he, that is Jeshurun, that is Jerusalem, forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Who's the rock of his salvation? That's Yeshua. So this prophecy by Moses is that Israel is going to turn away from God and away from Messiah. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. Did they do that? They hadn't yet. But yeah, they sure have. Read about it in the book of Ezekiel. Why did God allow the first temple to be destroyed? Because they turned it into a pagan place. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. What does that say about those pagan idols out there? There are demons behind them. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful. Who is that rock? That's Messiah. And have forgotten the God who fathered you. When the Lord saw it, he spurned them. Hasn't happened yet. He's talking about the captivities when Israel was conquered and taken out of the land. Because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are perverse generation, children in whom is what? No faith. Remember Hebrews chapter 3. How does God define no faith? No obedience. No obedience equals no faith. If you don't remember that, we'll look at it after we finish this. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. That's talking about the salvation going out to the Gentile world to keep it alive until Israel's ready to receive it. I'll move them to anger by a foolish nation. 
That is exactly what Paul's writing about. It's exactly what happened. And Moses wrote it under God's inspiration before Israel ever crossed over the Jordan River into the land in the first place. So let's go back to Romans 11. So what is Paul's point then? Paul's point is Israel's turning away from God and their disobedience. Did that surprise God? No. He knew it was going to happen. He knew when it was going to happen, how long it was going to carry on, and when it was going to end. And who was going to be affected by it. Oh, and I also promised you we'd look at Hebrews. So go, keep a finger here and go up to Hebrews. Because the Lord tells us in no uncertain terms that to be disobedient is to have no faith. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So why does Paul say that they did not obey? Because they did not believe. Chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, them being those in the wilderness. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with what? Faith in those who heard it. Keep a finger in Romans. Go back to Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. What does the word by mean? B-Y. Depends on the context. So let's read the context. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by. Meaning this is how, right? The mechanism. By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. So how does the Lord define you have forgotten me? You stopped obeying me. The only reason you would disobey the true and living God is because you don't really believe. If you believe that the wages of sin is death, you don't want to sin. Yeah. And go to Jeremiah. It's not just in the New Testament. It's not just in Deuteronomy. Let's take a book halfway between the two. Jeremiah. Okay. Chapter 16. Jeremiah's written about the time of the Babylonian captivity. The northern kingdom's gone. Went into Assyria in 722 BCE. Haven't come back yet. Jeremiah 16, beginning in verse 10. Jeremiah is prophesying 
destruction of Jerusalem and the death of the nation. And verse 10, it shall be when you show this people all these words, that is the judgments that are to come. And they say to you, quote, why has the Lord proclaimed all this great disaster against us? Or what's our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we've committed against the Lord our God? Bear in mind, they're sacrificing their children to Moloch. They're giving praise and glory to Baal, Ishtar, Moloch, Dagon, and every other pagan god around. They've gone into the temple of God and cut creches in the walls to put up their pagan idols. They're assembling in the courts of the temple and showing their butts to the Lord so that they can bow down and worship the rising sun. They're baking cakes for the queen of heaven, by which they mean Ishtar. And yet they say to the prophet, why, what have we done? Yeah. Then you shall say to them, verse 11, because your fathers have forsaken me. Deuteronomy 8.11, right? They have walked after other gods and served them and worshipped them and have forsaken me and not kept my Torah, my law. And you've done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Yet they have the audacity to say, why? What do we do? Let's go back to Romans chapter 11. Verse 12. Now, if their fall, that is if the fall of Israel, they were destroyed as a nation because as a whole they rejected Messiah. If their fall is riches for the world, that is, the gospel went out to the rest of the world. And their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness, meaning how much more when the gospel comes back to Israel and they all get saved. He says, what's that going to do for the world? What happens when all Israel gets saved and cries out, Baruch Hababa Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who's coming back? Yeshua, Yeshua Messiah to come to rule and reign. What's that? And us. and us. We're coming too. Yes, of course. But look, how much more their fullness. Paul says, don't glory over the fact that they failed the Lord. Glory when they repent and come back to the Lord. So Paul, who's an apostle to whom? To the Gentiles. That's not where he always goes first, though. Whenever he stops in a new city, where does he go first? Synagogue. To the synagogue. Why does he do that? To speak Hebrew. <laughs> to speak Hebrew to his brethren and anyone else who will listen. So that's verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles. As much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means, and may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. Does it work? Let's go to Acts chapter 13. Yes, it works. Acts chapter 13. Verse 42. Paul comes to a new city. He goes into the synagogue. He begins preaching the gospel. 
Verse 42, so when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And when the synagogue, it's not congregation, just fix it, it's synagogue, had broken up many of the Jews and devout proselytes. What's a proselyte? Person who was born Gentile and is converted to Judaism. So they've gotten saved and joined the synagogue. Follow Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Hey, this is supposed to be for us. What are they doing here? How come they're getting saved? So what does Paul say? I want to provoke my countrymen to jealousy that they might get saved too. That they might see the joy and the peace that comes when somebody gets saved. Well, if during Messiah's crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and Pentecost and following and all those miraculous things when the dead raised up and all when he did and mm -hmm. walked the town and gave testimony and well even with all those great signs they still didn't want to believe but half the city of Jerusalem became believers at least 30,000 yeah. it says right. in the book of Acts right. so we think that the Jews entirely rejected Messiah but it's not true just the religious ones mm -hmm. yeah yeah I won't tell stories, but okay. Verse 15, for if they're being cast away, that is temporarily into the world, the diaspora, when Rome kicked them out of this, this nation of Israel, is the reconciling of the world, that is, it took the gospel with them across the world. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Is he literally talking about the resurrections being centered around the second coming of the Lord when all Israel gets saved? Yeah, he really is. It's life for the dead in two different meanings, though. First, Ezekiel chapter 37. Israel in the Valley of Dry Bones is about their spiritual life. But it's also talking about spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection. Did the Jews even know about resurrection? Yeah. How? Isaiah. Isaiah 26 Job. and Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. Kind of then chapter 12. Plus a lot of the Psalms. You're right, it's all over the Old Testament. So it's not just a New Testament concept. So let's look first at Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. Matthew chapter 23, verse 39. For I say to you, you shall see me no more, the me is Messiah Yeshua. Till you say, who's the you? Jerusalem. Look at verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
So until you, the Jews in Jerusalem, say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's more than meets the eye. What's the significance of saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? When Messiah made the triumphal entry right before Passover when he was crucified, they cried out, Baruch HaBashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. True. Now give me part two. What was being sung by the Levitical choirs at the moment Messiah died on the tree? Let's go to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Messiah was crucified just outside the north gate, which is close enough that you could hear all the singing going on in the temple. Yep, that's right. Psalm 118, verse, let's start with verse 22. We may as well start in 21. I will praise you. For you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And I've told you Golgotha looks like a skull because that's where they mined the limestone for building the temple. And that's the very place where Messiah was crucified was at that quarry which looks like a stone. So they took the stones from there to build the temple but rejected the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice in it and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. So when they cry out, as Matthew 23 is describing, blesses you, comes the name of the Lord, they're saying, you, Yeshua, are the Messiah. You are the promised one of God. You are our salvation. You are the stone which the builders rejected. You are the Lord, which means you are God. So this is a final recognition by the children of Israel that Yeshua is truly whom you and I know him to be. Let's go to Zechariah 14 to see what happens when Israel cries out for the Lord's return. Zechariah 14. The tribulation period begins in verse 1. Just to give us a time hack. And if you look back a verse, verse 9 of Zechariah 13 is one that tells us Israel's going to be purified through the seven years of the tribulation period. And then chapter 14, verse 1, it's about to begin. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is a thousand years long. How can a day be a thousand years? Okay. 
So 90 verse 4, 2 Peter 3, 8. Yeah. Something like that. Use the definition of age. Yeah. But it goes from the rapture and the resurrection to the new heavens and new earth. But at the beginning, right after the rapture and resurrection, is seven years of the tribulation period. Some people say, nowhere in the Bible does it say there's a seven-year tribulation period. Okay, call it Daniel's 70th week. Call it what you want to. But in the first three and a half years, two billion people die. Okay. I heard a joke, but the recorder's running, so I won't. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. What does it take for all the nations to come? That means the United Nations is behind it. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. What armies of the world do that to women? Muslim armies. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. What happened between verses 2 and 3? Jerusalem cried out for the Lord to return. When they cry out for the Lord to return, what's he going to do? He's going to return. And in that day, oh, now we know when. What's that in that day? In the day of the Lord. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives who faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountains shall move toward the north, half it toward the south. You shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now look at the next sentence. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. You've read Revelation 19.11. Who's coming? Our Messiah Yeshua. He's called here the Lord. He's called my God. And who are these saints that are coming with them? Are those angels? No. That's the raptured and resurrected saints. Verse 6 tells us it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. Joel chapter 2 tells us that. Matthew chapter 24 tells us that. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord. I've heard several pastors just this week say the rapture and the return of the Lord could happen at any moment on any day because God hasn't decided when yet. Really? Zechariah says it shall be one day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. How do the Torah sages describe that light? They say it's the light of salvation. We saw the same thing up here in Romans, referring to Messiah coming as bringing the light of salvation. So let's go back there to Romans chapter 11. <laughs> I got to stop for a moment. I didn't write this Bible. I didn't publish it. But they put a neat little comment in here. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? They say, go look at Isaiah chapter 26, verses 16 and 19. So let's do that. 
there is a spiritual resurrection, there is a physical resurrection to life. Both will happen. The spiritual resurrection is in um, Ezekiel chapter 37, the vision of Valley of Dry Bones. Physical resurrection is in Isaiah 26, 19. Which says, your dead shall live. How can dead people live again? They must be resurrected. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Who's the my? That's Isaiah. He says, hey, when the rapture comes, I'm going. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust. Do people sing when they're happy or sad? Happy. happy. It's going to be a happy day. Just read Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. For your dew, that refers to regeneration, is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers. Oh, chambers is such a nondescript word. What is that word? Chadar, the bridal chamber. There's only two people that go into the bridal chamber, Melanie, the bridegroom and the bride. And shut your doors behind you. Just think of the ark. God shut the door to the ark. Then later, in fact, seven days later, the rains came and destroyed everybody in the outside. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. Give me that Hebrew word. Za'am. Z-A apostrophe A-M. That is the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period. So where are God's people? when his indignation is poured out. They're in the bridal chambers in heaven. How do you know the bridal chambers are in heaven? John 14, verse 1 and 2. What's it say? There's no bridegroom in the chambers, just the bride. No, the bridegroom's going to be in the bridal chamber too. Not when God pours out the wrath, right? Yes. They're going to be there out of the wrath. Let's keep reading. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place. What's the his place? That's the bridal chamber. To punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That is the battle of Armageddon. That word iniquity means lawlessness. The earth will also disclose her blood, will no more cover her slain. Can you keep all of God in the bridal chamber? No. God's everywhere. Okay. I'll just go to John 14 and look. John 14 is the only place where Messiah talks about the rapture. It's not in Matthew 24. John 14 one says, Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. Does your Bible have a little asterisk by the word mansions? Yeah, mine does. It, it says essentially, yeah, it's not mansions, but we had to call it something. It's the bridal chambers. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Where does the bridegroom go to prepare a place for the bride? To the father's house to build the bridal chamber. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the rapture. That where I am, there you may be also. All right, let's go back to Romans chapter 11. 
or 16. For if the first fruit is holy, what's the first fruit? Messiah. Where would we get that idea? From Acts chapter what? 15. Let's go to Acts chapter 15. No, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll go there instead. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm beginning to realize why I never get done. I take too many Ibex trails. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20. But now Messiah is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, died as believers. But Messiah can't be the first fruits, right? First fruits is a sheaf, not a stalk. This must mean that others were resurrected when he was resurrected. Where do we find that? Matthew 27. Let's go to Matthew 27. Starting in verse 51. It says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So they, with the Messiah, are the first fruits. They are that sheaf. So and we go ahead that would indicate that they did not die again they were actually taken that would indicate they didn't die again prove it prove it now let's go to Acts chapter 1 and let's see what happened when Messiah returns in the clouds what are the clouds The raptured and resurrected saints. Correct. So let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. When he returns, the cloud are the saints. What are the clouds when he goes? Those were the saints that were resurrected with them. Boy, wouldn't you like to talk to them and see how the last 2,000 years have been going? Absolutely. Back to Romans 11, verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, was the first fruit holy? Was Messiah holy? Were the saints who were raised with him holy? Yes. The lump is also holy. He's calling you and me a lump. I'll bite you. No, no, it's not that. It's not that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let me explain to you what that lump is. Then you might not mind being called lumpy so bad. It is set apart. Yep. When you make the two loaves of challah, there's a third piece of dough that's broken apart and baked at the same time. That piece is called the lump. So that part you don't eat. It's just wholly set apart unto God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, well, start in 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 
Therefore purge out the old leaven, since that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. What feast? Passover. But wait a minute, Paul's talking to Gentiles. Are you mean to tell me he's telling Gentiles we should keep the Passover? Yes, he is. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. How do we know he's writing to Gentiles? 1 Corinthians 12, 2 says, you know that you were Gentiles. Look at it, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. So yes, Paul is teaching the Gentiles who've gotten saved how to keep Passover. All right, back to Romans chapter 11. If the first root is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Messiah is the root. Or the branches. What did Messiah have to say about that in the book of John? I'm the vine, you're the branches, and the branches must what? Must abide in me? Yeah, let's go look at John chapter 15. You must abide in me. Your life as a believer is not a one-time event. It's a lifelong experience. John chapter 15. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Does he take it away to a party? He takes it away to a fire. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because the words I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now be careful, the recorder is running. So let's go back to Romans chapter 11 still. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. We looked already at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. We looked at what a lump is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's add to that by going to Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. A little leaven. What's leaven a picture of? Sin. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the same thing Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5. So can you as a believer just keep a little bit of sin just to hang on to your favorite sin and let go of everything else? 
Answer is no. Where are we at? That was Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Mm -hmm. Back to Acts chapter 11. Yeah, thank you, Romans. <laughs> I like it better when we're all in the same book at the same time. Chapter 17, and if some of the branches, the key word there is some. There have always been since the time of Messiah, Messianic Jews. There's never been a time that the world was without Messianic Jews. They're oftentimes very small. You can even read, though, historically about some of the greatest Orthodox rabbis in history who got saved. Like Rabbi Zavi. And continued to lead their synagogues because they were so well respected that their faith in Messiah didn't cause the synagogue to dismiss them. But in verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. The root is Messiah. What's the fatness? The Holy Spirit. The fatness of the olive tree is the olive oil which pictures the Holy Spirit. So these believers out of the Gentile world were grafted into the cultivated olive tree from wild olive tree. And you know what? Botanists say that's not possible. But the Bible says with God all things are possible. But what does it mean to be grafted in? Does that mean you're separate, distinct, and apart? Or that you're no longer separate and distinct and apart? Is that what Paul took all that time to write about in the book of Ephesians? It is. Keep a finger here. Go to Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17. For this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Does that mean it's true or false? It's true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. How many categories were there? Two. Two. There's Jew and Gentile. Well, if you're not supposed to no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, how are you supposed to walk? The way the believing Jews do. You've been grafted in. How did John put it in John chapter 10? He says the very same thing, just in a different way, a different example. Verse 16, John 10, 16. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. That's the Gentiles who will come to faith in Messiah. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's kind of like one olive tree. Instead of a bunch of olive trees, it's one olive tree rooted in Messiah, fed by the Holy Spirit. Acting and moving as one flock, following one shepherd, down how many pants? One. I was listening to a preacher very recently that was mocking the Messianic movement about how they want to restore worship to the way it was back in the first century. Yeah. If you could have gone to services with Peter, Paul, James, or John, would it have been on Shabbat? It would have been on Sunday morning. 
would have been on Shabbat. Would they have kept the festivals or not? They would have kept the festivals. Would they have eaten pigs? No. Somebody brought up today Mark chapter 7 and how the NIV and Bibles from the Westcott Hort Greek text, which has been adulterated, says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Had he really done that, would Peter, many years later in Acts chapter 10, say, I have never eaten anything common or unclean? He was there in Mark chapter 7. Did he walk away going, oh, the Lord wants us to eat pigs now? No, he did not. So it's easy to tell which is the true version of the text, that which is in the received text or the Westcott Hort, which is in a... Yeah. Yeah. So if you can find me anywhere in the New Testament where somebody eats a pig, <laughs> I won't eat the pig, but I would eat the page. But you're right, it's not there anywhere. What do we learn in 1 Corinthians 13? What happened to the prophet who believed that God would change a commandment after he gave it? He got eaten by a lion. Yeah. He learned in no uncertain terms that when God gives a commandment, God does not change. Something unclean ate him. Something unclean ate him. Where in the scripture does it say, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips? Psalm 89, verse 34. All right. I digress. We're back in Romans chapter 11. Verse 17, and as some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. Isn't that what replacement theology is That's what replacement theology is all about. So don't make fun of the Jewish people that didn't get saved. That's a tragedy in God's eyes. D yes, ma'am? Replacement theology says God is done with the Jews. He forsook them. He cast them away. And he replaced them with the Christian church. And peace. Yeah. Okay. And that's still being taught big time now. Oh, yeah. It's being taught more than ever. More and more denominations are turning against Israel. The most recent was the Presbyterians. They're also turning against God. Yep. They're also turning against God. So. so, verse 18 Do not boast against the branches, but if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Hmm. And you will say, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That's a true statement. Branches were broken off. Why were they broken off? Because they lacked faith. And you were grafted in because you have faith. What happens if you lose your faith? So let's keep reading. Verse 19, you'll say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, meaning that's true. 
Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And how do you manifest unbelief? By disobedience. That's Hebrews chapter 3 all over again. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For, I mean, here's why you should fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. What does that mean? It means that if you lose your faith, you may be broken off the tree. Yeah, you see it all the time, and it is sad. I've known so many people throughout the, my life in ministry that worship God and claim to be Christians for years and years, and then decided that Yeshua is a fraud, there is no God, and just walked away. There are what's called anti-missionaries out there amongst the unsaved Jewish people who try very hard to persuade you that your salvation is a fraud. That the people who taught you about the Lord lied to you. And they're very good at what they do. And here's the way they approach things. Let me give you just an example. Turn to the book of Matthew. I've had a lot of interactions with the anti-missionaries. Go to the book of Matthew, chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And they'll say, Now don't the Christians tell you that Jesus was crucified on Friday and rose on Sunday? That's, they, they just say, The Christians. Didn't the church tell you that he died on Friday, was raised on Sunday? Are there three nights between Friday and Sunday? Well, these are words of prophecy. What does the Bible say about a prophet whose words don't come to pass? He's a false prophet. So this Jesus that you believe in, he's a false prophet. But do you see what they did? They started from the scripture and said, but what do they tell you? The scripture didn't tell us a lie. Messiah didn't tell us a lie. The church told us a, a lie, a bad teaching. One of many. That's right. Um, and they'll say, doesn't Leviticus chapter 11 say that it's absolutely forbidden to eat pork? Yep. But didn't the church tell you that in Mark chapter 7, Jesus declared all foods clean and said, now you can go eat piggies? So they're using, here's what the Bible says, here's what the church teaches, you see Jesus is false. And unfortunately, too many people fall for it. Do they listen to you long enough to find out that there are people that we believe Yeshua died on Thursday, 
Yeah. Yeah. But I still, I get calls and emails from people fairly regularly. Wayne, I've been listening to you for 18 years, and you say there's a pre-tribulation rapture, but I just listened to somebody on the radio say there isn't. Now I'm all confused. I don't know what to believe. How do they explain that there's no pre-trib? Well, they didn't give me any scriptures. They just said there wasn't. Oh, well, what does the Bible say? I don't know. I'm all confused. Okay, never mind. Back to Romans. In Romans 11? Yes. Romans 17. I'm sorry, let me... Yeah, Romans eleven seventeen is where they were broken off and you were grafted in. Oh, there it is. Uh, 19, it says, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, the branches weren't broken off. In, it, now, I could be misunderstanding this, but the purpose of the branches being broken off was because of their lack of faith. Correct. It wasn't just to graft somebody else. It was not just to make a place for you. I haven't looked at the Greek here to see whether that is a proper translation or not. I mean, I haven't grafted trees, but y'll, some of y'all may have grafted trees. Yes. And don't you have to get a good branch? To yes. To graft in. Now, yeah. the branches being broken off are dead branches. Okay, because you're not going to take a green branch right. so, and break it very, you have to, you have to, you know, because right. a so dead branch, you can break it off very, pretty much easily. Yeah, you're not grafting into the dead branch. Right, I didn't think so. No. But, so you're really talking about two different procedures. Correct. You branch into the trunk, off the, I mean graft into the, the trunk. branch that is unfaithful. Right. And then when you, when a, a you know, a Gentile branch gets put in there, it's in a healthy, different spot. Right. Because a believing Gentile is in a healthy spot. Right. But God did not break off a believing Jew to replace with a believing Gentile. Right. You are correct. Taking out the dead and replacing with the alive. Right. And another thing that may be significant, when you graft into anything, you don't just pick a smooth spot and cut a notch in there and then put your graft in there. There's a special place, it's a, it's a node that you can see and you take that node where where you would cut out that notch and put your graft in there and tape it up and everything and hold it Good. tight. But since this is not a class in horticulture, let's go back to Romans 11. I think it's significant that you don't just take a, a branch and arbitrarily put it in there, you gotta find a place where it's gonna get life. Right. You can't just make it happen any place. Right. You and once you graft it in, it's got to stay there. It's got yes. to abide. Yes. That's why you put all that tape and stuff right. to hold it in place. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so you got to have a good, a good discipleship program going on. Yeah. So verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Let's go look at some other scriptures on this point. Go to Revelation 2.5. Again, I heard a preacher recently preaching on once saved, always saved, and said, if you look at verses like in Romans chapter 11, it may make you think that you can get removed from the tree. He said, but that's contrary to the doctrine of once saved, always saved, so just ignore that. 
If a scripture is contrary to a, an established church doctrine, then just ignore those verses. Yeah, that's not my approach to scripture. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. The very first church is the church of Ephesus. This church is special to John because this is the church that John pastored before he was sent off into captivity. Yeah, I was afraid of that. The people who go to meeting can't understand a lot of what you guys are saying. You're too far away. So, Okay. So Re Revelation 2, the first church is Ephesus. It's special to John. He pastored it before he was sent away. But once he's sent away, then the leadership becomes Gentile leadership. Do they still stay as fervent for the Lord? No, they start to grow colder. In Revelation 2, verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. That is the equivalent of removing the branch that has been grafted in. You're turning away from God. They're not all the way there yet, but they're turning away. They're growing cold. They don't see why they should do this Jewish stuff. And the commandments are becoming less important to them. And God's saying, I'll take you out of the tree if you want. But you really don't want that. In chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 16, we're talking to another church. This is Pergamos. In chapter 16, well, let's back up to 14. Why is the Lord upset with the church of Pergamos? But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Put that in the modern world. Are the churches teaching people to eat things that are profane, things that have been sacrificed to idols, things that are unclean? Are they telling people it's okay to commit sexual immorality, to have homosexual marriage, to ordain homosexuals, etc.? Yeah. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, give it to me again. The technical term is antinomianism which means that when Messiah was crucified, the law was done away with. So therefore, we don't have to follow the commandments. Isn't that the church's justification for all the liberal doctrines that have come into the church? The Nicolaitans were teaching that the law has been abolished and done away with. And he says, which thing I hate. This is what I grew up in in modern church doctrine is the commandments have been done away with. That's Nicolaitanism. In Revelation chapter 2, we're about to do verse 16. Okay. We looked at verses 14 and 15. Okay. Repent or else. What more do you need to say? Repent or else. I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Is that to bless them and to say, well done? No. But if the commandments no longer apply, what's wrong with killing unborn children? 
What's wrong with ordaining homosexuals? Why shouldn't we do such things? Problem is the commandments have not been abolished. And if I quit talking so much, we're going to find that out eventually. Let's go on to chapter 2, verses 21 to 22. Notice this is church after church. 21 to 22 says, And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her in a sickbed with those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Are these churches to which the letters went? Are they people that claim to be saved, that claim to be God's children? And what does he keep telling them? Repent or else. Revelation 3, the story continues. Look at verse 3, the church at Sardis. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour will come upon you. First Thessalonians 5 says, if you understand and practice the feasts and the festivals, you'll know when he's coming. What does this tell you about this church and their observance of the festivals? They've stopped. And therefore, they don't understand. And they will get caught like a thief in the night. And that's not good. Same chapter. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chase, and therefore be zealous and repent. How many times does God have to tell us to repent before we listen? My next note is go to John 15, verses 1 to 10, but we already did. And from there we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. First Corinthians 15, verse 58, is after the talk about the rapture. But it has to do with grafting in and about how you must remain steadfast in the grafting. Verse 58, are you there? First Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, that is, abide in the branch, in its grafting. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord? That's obeying the commandments. What's that Hebrew word for work there? Would be mitzvot. What's the word for commandments? Mitzvot. What, what's that word? Mitzvot, M-I-T-Z-V-O-T, is the plural for commandments or for works. When you're talking about that kind of work. There's another word for work, which is evit, from which we get the word slave, servant, or employee. It says, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Look also at Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. 
again, it addresses the question, must we remain steadfast? And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. What's another term for wicked works? Sin, lawlessness. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if. What's that word if? It's a little word. It's a condition. If indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I Paul became a minister if you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast if you cannot walk away from your faith why does Paul talk so much about don't do it Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. I know we came to Hebrews 3 earlier, but that was for verses 18 and 19. Verse 14 says, For we have become partakers of Messiah, if. We hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So if we walked down an aisle when we were, oh, let's say in sixth grade, and made a profession of faith, can we then go out and walk in the sins of the world and expect a pass to heaven one day? Not according to the scriptures. Second Peter three. Second Peter three. Which is about the rapture, the resurrection, the day of the Lord, the wrath of God being poured out, etc. Verse seventeen. You therefore, beloved. Since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall away from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Does that say we can fall away from our steadfastness and be led away with the error of the wicked? What is the error of the wicked? The error of the wicked is that the commandments have been done away with. We can now live any old way we want to. You know, God used to hate sin. Now he likes it. Anybody believe that? No. In following up of all these things, he said we can walk away and we can fall off. Uh-huh. Isn't there scripture that says, okay, you thought you were on the right path, and then you took this detour, but you can come back yes. to the right path? Yes, there is scripture that says you were on the right path, you fell off, you went into sin, but you can repent and come back. Okay. Yep. Could I put that at the end of my notes? Of course. Where is that? Of course. Um, All these verses All of these, that he's yeah. in Revelation, 
faith and repent. But she wants First John chapter one, verse nine. Very specific. Okay. You have encouragement. You want King James version? No, no. She wants First John chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. Okay, back to Romans 11, verse 22. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Oh, I got it read out there. Let's see. Can you share of the scripture that speaks of losing saltiness? That's in... Matthew chapter 7, I believe. Let's go back and see if it is. Matthew 7. If it's not Matthew 7, it's one of the parallel teachings on it. Okay, so it's not in Matthew 7, so it's one of the... It's one of the parallel teachings where he's teaching Matthew on the same topic. 5.13. What's that? Matthew 5.13? Yeah. Matthew 5.13. Thank you. If you're, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Or they put a light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. So that's all part of that same teaching. One after First John one nine. Give me a second here. That's when he went to Matthew five. Oh, okay. What's the one after Colossians? That one after Colossians one was Hebrews three fourteen. And then Second Peter chapter three verse seventeen. Yep. Second Peter three seventeen. Yep. And Danny, let's defer your question until we get to a particular verse in Romans that's coming up, if you don't mind. So, verse 22. Romans 11, verse 22. What's that? I thought you were somewhere else. That's okay. See, here's a red number one. Danny says he'll wait. Okay. I just know that there's a whole topic coming right on his point. So verse 22. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. Hold out two hands. And one put goodness and the other put severity. Because you only get one or the other. Throughout scriptures, God keeps putting people into two baskets. My servants and my enemies. Which one gets the goodness? My servants. Which one gets the severity? My enemies. What's the difference between the servant and the enemy? One obeys and the other does not. Because one has faith, the other does not have faith. 
Verse 22, goodness and severity. But toward, I'm sorry, on those who fell, severity. But toward you, goodness. What is one of those really harmful teachings that you hear all the time? Jesus saves everyone. Yep, I keep seeing those signs all over the city. But it's that God is love. And the truth is, God is love. The scripture says God is love. But is God love toward everyone? Or is God love toward his children? How does God differentiate? How is God toward his enemies? Actually, he's good toward them most of the time. It says the goodness of God that, that reigns on the just Yeah. But think of the Amalekites. What did God tell King Saul? Kill every man, kill woman, and child, child, every animal, everything. everything. So people have an idea that God is simply overflowing with love out up there, which is true. God loves the whole world. But that God will give nothing but love, joy, and peace to everybody. That's where the scripture differentiates. And that's what verse 22 is trying to tell us. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. His point is, which one do you want? You get to choose. But you choose by your faith. And that's been true from Genesis on. That's been true from Genesis on. His name is not I am that I am, it's I will be whom I will be. So, verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God, and those who fell severity, but towards you goodness, but then there's a what? If. if. You continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. That's kind of straightforward, isn't it? But now in partial answer to Danny's question, Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So they were in the tree. They fell away from God. The branch got broken off. But if they do not continue in unbelief, they can be grafted back in again. The same way you can by repenting. The same way you can by repenting. Or I think he was talking about me in particular, but it was a general <laughs> statement as well. Okay. Verse 24. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, that's the Gentile, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, meaning people don't do that. You cultivate from good trees into bad trees, not bad trees into good trees. How much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Oh, remember when Daniel taught on mystery on the sowed? What's a mystery? The deepest level. Yeah, it's a, the deepest level interpretation. It means that there's more in the scriptures than we may have understood before. I've got a red number one out here. Let me check it. Ah, I think Danny's happy with that portion of the scripture, and we'll wait for the rest. Okay. 
Verse 25, For I do not desire you, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Oh, I want so much to talk about that phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles. We only have a few minutes, so hold on to your seat. I always you always what? People talk about it as if God has a particular number of Gentiles, so when the last Gentile gets saved, click, it's time for the tribulation period. And that's why they teach that nobody can be saved in the tribulation period but the Jews. There won't be any Gentiles saved. Because all the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's not true. Let's go look at it. Revelation 7. You've heard it said, but I tell you, it's written. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. You want to hear something dangerous? Take one verse out of context and make a doctrine out of it. <laughs> Revelation chapter 7 takes place immediately after the rapture and the resurrection. There'll be 144,000 Jewish men that are virgins that will be converted by the Lord himself like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. They're going to preach the gospel here, there, and everywhere around the world. And if you come to chapter 7, verse 9, we're going to read about the result of their preaching. Some made me sad this week, too, when I watched a preaching on YouTube on this particular point. They said there's going to be the rapture and a resurrection and all the saved Gentiles are going to be taken to heaven. No Jews, of course, but just the saved Gentiles. But then there's the two witnesses that are going to preach the gospel around the world. No mention of the 144,000. The two witnesses are only at the temple in Jerusalem. It's the 144,000 that takes the gospel around the world. But because they're Jews, they didn't get mentioned. Let's see what happened. Verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes with palm branches in her hands crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying... Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? He said to me, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And where are they from? All nations, tribes, people, and tongues. Will there be Gentiles saved in the tribulation period? Countless multitudes. That gives me great, great hope. Because I have some dear people that aren't ready. And at least I know that they have an opportunity if they'll take it. Let's go to Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Luke 21 includes some things that Matthew 24 does not.
Verse 24, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's what um, Romans 11 is referring to, is the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles refer to those Gentile world powers from Egypt to Assyria to Babylon to Medo-Persia, to Greece, to Rome, that have ruled the world and will continue to rule the world and to trample down Jerusalem until what? Until Messiah returns. That's the Jewish people will cry that Messiah will return. That's when the times of the Gentiles is at an end. The Temple Mount today, is that truly under Jewish control? It is not. Jerusalem then, in God's eyes, is still being trampled down by the Gentiles until Messiah returns. And then he will take control. So if we go back to Romans chapter 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in means until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that is at the second coming of our Messiah, Yeshua. And with that, it's 8 o'clock on the dot. I have run out of time. We will pick up next week, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Oh, what a place to end. And so all Israel will be saved. Oh, well, we have to wait. Okay.